The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Hi, everyone. It's Friday, and this is the next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnat, and I'm wrapping up a week-long exploration of the art and science of decision-making. If you missed any previous episodes, you can find them in your podcast feed. Today, we're going to hear from the best-selling author, Stephen Johnson. Stephen's written more than a dozen books on topics like software, innovation, public health, and longevity. But one subject that's long fascinated him is how people make decisions, big and small. So we talked to some of the leading experts in decision theory, as well as business leaders, scientists, and artists about how they make the choices they do. And he pulled his research into a book called Farsighted, How We Make the Decisions That Matter the Most. Stephen realized that any tough decision involves a series of stages, and that to make good choices, we should really take these stages one at a time. The first stage of a decision-making process is what I call in Farsighted the mapping phase. Now, the key thing about the mapping phase is that you're not trying to actually make your final decision during this phase. You're trying to actually, in a sense, put more variables on the table. You're trying to map all the different facets that may influence the decision uh, that may affect its ultimate consequences. And one of the most important things to do during this mapping phase is to identify other options on the table. Most of us, when we go into a big choice, end up looking at one option and trying to decide whether we should do this or not. But in fact, generating other options ends up being one of the most productive things you can do in the entire process. This is partially based on some fascinating research by a management theory professor named Paul Nutt, research that was done in the 80s and the 90s. Nutt is kind of the Darwin of decision theory. And he went out into the wild of corporate America and analyzed all these actual real-world decisions high-ranking executives had made at these companies. And he looked at both their decision-making process, or lack thereof, and also the long-term results of those decisions. Two years, three years later, were the executives happy with the choice that they'd made? Did they feel that it was the right one or not? Was it a success or was it a failure? Nunn ended up coming up with a number of significant findings, but I think the most important one is this. The overwhelming majority of decision makers never included a phase of their decision process where they actively sought out and tried to discover other options to explore. Not describes this as the difference between a whether or not decision and a which one decision. If you take the time at the beginning of the decision-making process during this mapping phase to explore new options, you'll end up with a more successful outcome. If the mapping phase of making a big decision is all about generating new options and understanding the full spectrum map of all the variables at play in a complicated choice, one of the best ways to explore that set of possibilities is to assemble a diverse team of people to help you make the choice. This is one of the most robust findings in the social sciences over the last 20 or 30 years, that diverse groups are collectively smarter than homogeneous groups. Uh, there's a great kind of slogan for this that the 
social scientist Scott Page came up with years ago, which is diversity trumps ability. <laughs> and the idea behind that is that if you take a very smart group of people who are high IQ, but all come from the same background and have the same framework for looking at a problem and give them a kind of creative problem to solve, and then take a second group that's technically lower IQ, but comes at the problem from a diverse range of perspectives, that lower IQ group will actually outperform in terms of the creative problem solving. It's because diversity brings a whole new set of perspectives and understandings and gov governing metaphors to understanding a complex issue. So building diverse teams, making sure that you have a bunch of different perspectives on the problem, making sure you have different intellectual or professional backgrounds, consulting when you make a complicated choice, that is one of the best techniques to use during the mapping phase. On some level, any complex decision is implicitly a prediction about the future. You think if you move to the suburbs that in five years time, you'll be happier, your kids will be better off or the reverse. So you're making predictions about complex events in the future that involve lots of variables. And it turns out human beings are terrible at predicting the future, particularly when there are a lot of facets at play. And the most important study of, of this comes from the work uh, of a brilliant guy named Philip Tetlock. And years ago, Tetlock decided to go out and test so-called experts uh, in a whole range of different fields and ask them to predict the future in their specific field of expertise. So he would ask financial experts about the, what interest rates were going to be in two years or foreign policy experts about what was going to happen with Russia in, in three years. And Tetlock had the audacity to go back and actually test these forecasts two or three or five years later and see if the experts were right. And it turned out in the end, the experts were incredibly bad at predicting the future. They were worse than the proverbial dart-throwing chimp. And Tedlock even found that there was an inverse correlation between the fame of the expert and how successful they were as a forecaster. The more famous they were, the more likely they were to have terrible predictive powers. But he did find a small subset of these experts who were in fact better than chance at predicting the future. In a later study, he dubbed these people the super forecasters. And he decided to go and try and figure out what defined the approach of these super forecasters. What made them better at predicting outcomes in complex situations? And his findings uh, in, in this research were really fascinating. What he discovered was that the super forecasters were much less likely to have a single monolithic overarching theory of the world. They were dabblers. They had an eclectic set of interests. They weren't experts in one particular field. They didn't have one dominant theory of how the world works. They just had a lot of kind of smaller theories and, and interests and hobbies. And that eclectic set of interests enabled them to be open to new possibilities in future events. They weren't narrow band in their interpretation of everything. They were much more full spectrum. And in a sense, they had a lot of diversity in their own minds. They had different interests, different hobbies. And so when we're thinking about predicting the future and, and analyzing the, the long-term consequences of the choices that we confront, the key lesson from Tetlock's research is that we shouldn't be in the throes of a single interpretation about how change is going to happen in our businesses or in our lives. We should draw upon a lot of different disciplines. We should draw upon a lot of different fields in making that kind of choice. It's another argument for the importance of diversity. Yes, expertise has a role if you're assembling a team of experts to advise you on a problem. But for the long view, for thinking about the long-term impact of the choices we make, dabblers and Hobbyists will always outperform more single-minded thinkers. 
the future is unpredictable by definition, particularly when we're dealing with complex choices. And so because we can never fully predict the outcomes of our choices, we have to tell stories. And we have to tell, crucially, multiple stories to imagine different outcomes so that we don't get locked into one particular way of thinking about the consequences of the actions we're about to take. And this is best, I think, exemplified by a, a technique that was developed in the, in the 1970s for businesses, but I think it also applies in people's personal lives. It's called scenario planning. One of the techniques that one of the early pioneers of scenario planning, Peter Schwartz, talks about is to, is to tell three stories about the choice you're confronting. One story where things get better, one story where things get worse, and one story where things get weird. And I've always loved that last option where things get weird because it forces your mind to imagine some uh, other set of outcomes that are really not intuitively coming to you initially. You have to explore the possibility space. You have to explore the full spectrum of the map of the future in order to come up with that weird outcome. So one of the key things to do in the final stages of a decision process is to force yourself to assess the probability or certainty that you feel about the outcomes you're contemplating. Jeff Bezos has an interesting rule that, that he invokes at Amazon, which is he calls the 70% rule, which is don't wait until you're 100% confident about the outcome of the choice you're confronting because you're, you're never going to get to 100%. But if you get to 70%, then it's time to pull the trigger on, on the choice. And I think what's important there is one, understanding that you're never going to get to 100%, but to that exercise of asking yourself, how likely is this thing to happen? How likely is it that this outcome is going to happen? How likely is a, is a bad outcome? We don't tend to do that intuitively, but it's an exercise when we do it, it will make our, our decisions more nuanced uh, in exploring the possible outcomes of what we're looking at. One of my favorite examples of this in terms of technology is a, is a patent that Google filed a couple of years ago, a patent that was really the first public acknowledgement that they were working on self-driving cars. And inside this patent is a long document, but it includes this one kind of extraordinary table. It's called a bad events table. So as Google's self-driving car is navigating around the streets of Silicon Valley, it's constantly, every split second, generating a list of bad things that can happen given the configuration of people and objects on the street, right? There's a bicyclist nearby, you could run over that bike, bicyclist. There's a truck headed towards you at 40 miles an hour, you could crash headfirst onto that truck. Or you could scrape the side of the car uh, as you pass uh, a car that's parked on the, on the right side of the road. For each of these potential bad events, the car generates both the likelihood of the event happening and what Google calls the risk magnitude of the event. So crashing headfirst into the truck at 40 miles an hour has very high risk magnitude. That's a very bad event, but it might be very unlikely to happen. And the car is doing this constant algorithmic analysis of all these potential threats, their likelihood and the severity of the threat that they pose. And to me, that seems like a really useful metaphor for the kinds of assessments that we have to make with complicated choices in our life. So I think it's important when we reach a crossroads in our personal lives or in our business lives, when we're confronting a decision that involves consequences that will ripple out into the future, that we run those probability analyses of the decision, that we, in a sense, build a bad events table in our mind. Because what often happens with the human mind is that it sees a future where there's a 70% chance of complete success, and our mind naturally gravitates towards that choice. But every now and then, one of those decisions with the 70% chance of tremendous success has a 5% chance of catastrophic failure. And sometimes, at the most important crossroads, we need to pay attention to that 
Thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to hear more from Stephen, he's brought his incisive reporting style to our Next Big Idea app in the form of an original audiobook called Immortality, A User's Guide. If you'd like to hear what Stephen discovered about how to live longer and better, check that out in the Next Big Idea app, available in your favorite app store. And I hope this week of big ideas on decision-making helped with any tough calls you might be facing in life right now. If you missed any of the episodes, you can find them in this podcast feed. You can also sign up for my newsletter using the link in the episode notes. When you sign up for free, I'll send you a weekly summary of the best new ideas, and you can reply with feedback, questions, and suggestions. This week's episodes were written and produced by me, Michael Kovnat, edited by Caleb Bissinger. We're both proud members of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. Have a great weekend. I'll see you Monday.